Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Thank you. In our last episode, the near-fatal attack on Tim Harvey prompted Joe to question Tim at his hospital bedside about the identity and motive of his assailant. Ever one to hold a grudge and not one to waste an opportunity, Tim suggested that the identity of both his attempted murderer and Judith Dalton's killer was none other than Greg Vivian. Like a trail of breadcrumbs, Tim's disclosure concerning Vivian led Joe first to the house of Barry Benoit and finally to the house of Hunter Langtree. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. Hunter walked out of her darkened bedroom and quickly across the hall to one of the smaller bedrooms that looked out onto Route 3. She stood there in the dark to the side of the window and carefully lifted a corner of the curtain, just enough so she could see the driveway below. From her vantage point, even in the darkness, she could see Sheriff Martin, but he couldn't see her. He was looking up at the back of her house. He stood there for a few minutes. Then he got into his SUV and drove away. She walked back across the hall to her bedroom and sat down on the edge of the bed. She picked up the phone on the bedside table and dialed the number. It's me. Guess who was just here asking me a lot of questions about Greg? She paused, listening to the voice on the other end of the line. He just asked me when I last saw Greg and if his clothes were bloody. Of course I told him they were and how out of it he was, and how he threatened me with a knife last night. I told him what Greg said about getting Harvey. She paused, listening. No, I didn't tell him that Greg said he would come back by. I only told you that. Where are you? Are you coming by? As she listened to the response, Hunter rose from the bed and went to the bedroom window. She pulled the curtain aside. In the moonlight, she could see the meadow, and just beyond the meadow, the looming outline of the National Forest. You're up to your ears with the paperwork on Tim Harvey. What happened to him? She listened carefully. Do you think Greg had anything to do with it? She became uneasy as she continued to listen. She leaned her head against the window pane, peering harder into the night at the distant forest. He was out there somewhere. Well, how long do you think it will be before you finish the paperwork? She listened to the response. Look, I haven't seen you in a while. She could feel herself becoming anxious, frightened. Forget that cow, she said, lashing out. 
She stopped and took a deep breath and changed the tone of her voice. Can't you just stop by for a little while? You know that nightgown that I bought just for you? I'm wearing it, and your favorite perfume. She lowered her voice and purred. I bet you can't guess what I'm not wearing. She smiled a little wicked smile. It quickly faded. I thought it was you at the door. She listened. No, I didn't have on the robe. She waited, listening intently. If I had gone back to get the robe, he would have thought I was waiting for someone. He never would have left. And believe me, I wanted him to. He was looking at me like a thirsty man in a desert who hasn't had a drop of water for days. I could feel his eyes all over me. He got real close to me. He wanted me to go upstairs with him to the bedroom to see if Greg was there. I told him no. He said he could take me to the station house if I didn't. I told him to take me to the station house. I wasn't going upstairs with him. I told him that Greg wasn't there. Finally, he just smiled at me. He went up by himself and took a look and then came back downstairs. She paused, waiting for the voice on the other end of the line to respond. I'm not lying. He just left a few minutes ago. I swear to God. He frightened me. Please, can't you come even if it's just for a few minutes? I'm really scared. She waited for the reply she'd hoped she'd get. Okay, you still have your key. Good. I'll be waiting for you. I'll see you in a little while. A long, gnarled, outstretched crabapple branch, bent low from age, rested on the whitewashed fence. Thorny rose vines were wrapped around it, escaping from the confines of the sleeping garden. During other seasons, these vines bore bright red roses, climbing beauties. They had been her mother's favorite. The hydrangeas, always noted for their beautiful blue heads, now stood unkempt from lack of adequate care. Too tall to bear flowers, sullen, dark, and despondent. A holly bush, its waxy, bright green, thorny leaves standing erect on what had once been carefully shaped branches, now stood wild and unchecked, its spiked arms jutting out into the garden bullying the surrounding perennials for space. Ivy encircled the holly bush, crawling along its branches, its thin green shoots seeking the fence and the rambling rose vines that stood nearby. Brown leaves littered the garden floor, pushed there by gusty winds, trapped by the high grass. The garden Anne's mother had so faithfully tended for so many years had changed, grown melancholy with her mother's absence as Anne herself had over the last year. Anne stared through the kitchen window at her mother's garden that nature had started to reclaim. That horrible dream she'd had about her grandmother so many years ago had been her first premonition. She had dreamt that her grandmother, who had been in good health up until that point, was going to die. She couldn't explain how or why she knew, but she knew about the cancer before the doctors found it. She knew it would be inoperable and would take her grandmother's life within weeks of its discovery. That first premonition had been painfully accurate. After the death of her grandmother, the feeling had passed. She felt it had been just an anomaly, a horrible one-time event. But she was wrong. It laid in wait someplace in the recesses of her mind, like some unpredictable monster hiding in the shadows. The same feeling came several more times while she was in college. Each time, something tragic happened. She had seen several doctors about the headaches that preceded the premonitions. 
Some had suggested that the headaches might be some form of migraine. For this, they had prescribed various drugs, none of which seemed to help. But she had told no one of the premonitions. Even before her mother told her she was dying of cancer, Anne had already prepared to move her literary research business to Grover's Notch. She had known, without being told, what was wrong. She had known almost a year before it actually happened, the exact day and date that her mother would die, Thursday, November 5th. She had to be there. Since her mother's death, she had slowly but surely started to connect the dots, finally pinpointing how this affliction, this curse, might have started. A week before her 18th birthday, she had awakened alone in the woods, sprawled across a steep, slippery path, her legs entangled in her bike. The last thing she remembered was a bright light. She must have fallen and hit her head, knocked unconscious for how long she couldn't be sure, but she remembered having had a severe headache for three or four days. Her mother had taken her to the doctor. He had diagnosed only a mild concussion and some minor bruises typical of such a fall. He had told her mother to watch her for a few days and suggested that the headaches would eventually fade, and initially they did, but after that they would come and go, like an unwelcome visitor. From that point on, she was never free of them. The sharp whistle of the kettle brought Anne back to the present. Absent-mindedly, she went through the motions of making a cup of tea. Deftly balancing her teacup and saucer, she sat down at her usual place at the small kitchen table, refocusing her thoughts, making mental notes about what had to be done today with the research projects she'd started, who she had to email, supplies she had to pick up in town. She began to feel anxious, as if she had forgotten something. The more she went over her list, the more anxious she became. She realized that it wasn't that she'd forgotten anything. She felt that something was going to happen. Something about an old farmhouse, but she didn't know what. The more she thought about it, the more it began to envelop her. She began to feel claustrophobic. The kitchen door flew open, crashing into the wall. A strong gust of wind carrying the stench of decay forced its way through the open door, pushing her back in her chair, making it hard to breathe. She dropped the teacup, the liquid spilling across the table. Her face turned pale, her mouth dropped open, and her eyes were wide. She was unable to move. There was an insistent knock. The door that had been opened just a moment before was now closed. Anne? Anne, it's Laura. Anne still couldn't move. She concentrated hard, finally forcing herself to move to break the strange feeling of paralysis that had overtaken her. With effort, she rose from the chair and opened the door. Anne, you're so pale. Anne looked at Laura strangely. Her heart was beating wildly in her chest. The taste of decay was still in the back of her throat. She looked around the kitchen and then back at Laura, her eyes still wide. Anne, are you all right? It took her several moments to collect her thoughts before she could respond. Uh, I'm fine, Laura. I, I just dropped my teacup, the one from my mother's special set of china. Oh, Anne, is it broken? Anne turned and looked at the table. The china cup and saucer were still where she'd placed them, filled with hot tea. Laura glanced at Anne, a questioning look already spreading across her face. Oh, Laura, I'm sorry. I must have drifted off and dreamt it. I didn't get much sleep last night. Do you still want to go shopping? Yes, yes, 
I need to get out of here for a while. Anne pulled the zipper on her parka all the way up to her chin and pulled her blue wool hat down over her ears as she stepped outside. She shivered. I didn't realize it had gotten so cold. Yes, it must have dropped 20 degrees since yesterday, Laura replied. Anne waited as Laura slipped behind the wheel, leaned across the seat, and unlocked the front passenger's side of the minivan. Anne slid in and fastened her seatbelt. She could feel Laura's pensiveness. She turned to face Laura. Her friend was looking straight ahead. What's wrong, Laura? Nothing, Laura replied. No, it's something. What is it? Anne asked. Laura was silent for a moment. She turned to Anne and said, Anne, when I came up on the porch just a few minutes ago, I heard you scream. I thought something had happened to you. That's why I was knocking so loud. Are you sure you're okay? I'm fine, Laura. I don't remember screaming, but like I said, I must have drifted off. Maybe I screamed out when I dreamt I'd broken my mother's cup. Laura thought for a moment. I suppose that's possible. She paused. You still miss your mother, don't you, Anne? Yes, a lot. When you lose your parents, you suddenly realize that, for the first time in your life, you're all by yourself. I know I'm not a child, but it was always so comforting to hear her voice whenever I called. It gets better, Anne. I know how I felt when I lost my dad. I still miss him, but the hurt fades with time, and you still have the memories of all those times you were together. Anne nodded her head and turned to look back out the window at her mother's house and neglected garden. But it just seems like there are too many memories. There are some days when... I just don't think I can deal with it. There's so much of her that's still there. I think it makes it worse. And I know what you're going through. I've been through it. If you need to talk, I'm here. Anne turned and looked at Laura and smiled. Thank you, Laura. Laura smiled back and started the engine. I know this may sound silly, but once we finish our shopping, could we go for a drive? Anne asked. Maybe it would help to clear my head doesn't sound silly at all. I wanted to go over to Lancaster to pick up a bottle of wine for a housewarming present. A housewarming present or a cottage warming present, Anne asked with a smile. Laura laughed. It's just a friendly gesture, Anne. There was a loud rap on Laura's side window. Both women jumped. Sorry to scare you, ladies, Ronnie Boucher said, but the sheriff has instructed us to canvas the area, see if anyone's seen anything out of the ordinary. The little Dalton girl's murder has everyone just a little skittish. It was a terrible crime, so gruesome. It makes you wonder where monsters like that come from. Ronnie Boucher, how long have you been standing there? Laura asked, obviously perturbed by his familiar manner. I just drove up, Laura. Like I said, I'm just doing my job. Checking with as many people in the community as possible. Asking them if they've seen any strangers around or anything unusual. I thought you were a dispatcher. Laura replied flatly. My job description has changed. The sheriff needs as many people as possible to help him catch this mad dog killer, he said with a smile, followed abruptly by a more serious professional look. Laura grimaced. Well, I haven't seen anything or anyone unusual. She glanced at Anne. Ronnie Boucher pursed his lips and nodded. I can't say that I have anything to report either, Ronnie, Anne replied, trying to keep her voice even and natural. Anne glanced out the back window of Laura's minivan at the cruiser that was blocking her driveway. 
But we're late. Could you possibly move your cruisers so that we can back out? Ronnie Boucher glanced at his vehicle and nodded. Sure thing, Miss Newman. Now you ladies drive carefully, you hear? He said, flashing Laura a big grin. He turned and walked toward his cruiser. Anne turned to Laura and said, Laura, I think Ronnie Boucher is interested in you. Oh, God, Anne, not in this lifetime, Laura replied with a shudder. That guy gives me the creeps. Yes, I know what you mean, Anne replied. She didn't want to share the rest of her thoughts about Ronnie Boucher with Laura. How could she? There was no way of proving what she knew to be so. All she could do was make a suggestion. He's someone I'd stay clear of if I were you, Laura. Don't worry, I intend to, Laura replied adamantly. And now, a preview of our next episode. On their way to go shopping in the next town, Laura unexpectedly makes a stop at the Johnson farm. When she does, Anne catches sight of Henry Muntz. Why did Laura make this sudden detour? Why has Henry Muntz returned to the Johnson farm and left the warmth and safety of the rectory in town? Please consider joining our Patreon site and becoming a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, our Dreadnoughts get early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic commentary by the authors of the books and the creators of the podcast, exclusive access to episodes of the second half of each book as those episodes are released, and access to the entire back catalog of episodes as our podcast goes forward. Click the link in the show description now to become a dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.